Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started tonight, we'll keep going in our study on the tabernacle, and we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship. And after the first two things I read to you, you'll probably have to do it all over again, but... It's okay, we'll take our normal procedure, a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your grace, because it is your grace that gives us hope. It gives us a realization that no matter what we may face in life, no matter what the uh, difficulties or tragedies, no matter what the hardships may be, no matter what adversity we face, we know that there is a future with you. We know that you are in control and that whatever the circumstances are that we face, we know that you were fully aware of those circumstances millions or billions of years ago, that there never was a time when you weren't aware of what we would face and you made a perfect provision for us and not only what we have through Jesus Christ on the cross, but what you've revealed to us in your word, that through both the living word and the written word, we have all that we need to face and handle with joy, with happiness, and with stability every situation in life. Now, Father, as we study your word tonight, we pray that we might again be encouraged as we see how so many different parts of the scripture fit together, again evidencing the ultimate single authorship of the Holy Spirit, the unity within the 66 books of the Bible, and that this is indeed the unique book of history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you want to open your Bibles, you can open them to uh, the 25th chapter of Exodus. And while you are turning there, we'll be at Exodus 25:31. A couple of emails came in to me just prior to Bible class that I thought would be of some interest. Some of you may have heard this. I briefly saw something about this on the running across the scroll at the bottom of, uh, of the news when I was down at the gym this afternoon. Uh, a Michigan man is seeking $70 million from two Christian publishers for emotional distress and mental instability he received during the past 20 years from versions of the Bible that refer to homosexuality as a sin. 
Last night, Phil Graham said in an interview that we were turning into a bunch of nation of a bunch of whiners because people are whining like there's a recession when technically there isn't one. There's always these ups and downs in the economy, and everybody's groaning and moaning about different things. And if you're hurt by it, of course, uh, that there's you feel that. And at different times, we've all go, gone through that. But we've become a, such a self-absorbed people that when we face adversity or when anybody says something that disagrees with what we want to be true, then we take offense and want to go straighten everybody, everybody out. Somebody was saying before Bible class that they had read something in a cartoon strip that's referring to some character as being a uh, diagonal person in a parallel world. Think about it. Unbelievers are diagonal people in a parallel world created by God, and they want everybody else to become diagonal, and they want to legislate against anyone saying that it's a parallel world. And every time anybody even mentions that there's a God and that there are absolutes and that there are standards, they just go berserk. And that's what this uh, exemplifies. This man is suing Zondervan Publishing Company and Thomas Nelson Publishing because he claims that they deliberately, deliberately caused homosexuals to suffer by misinterpretation of the Bible. He's seeking $60 million from Zondervan and $10 million from Thomas Nelson. So he's got these two separate lawsuits. And fortunately, at the end of the article, uh, the district, U.S. district judge who will hear the case against Thomas Nelson says that he has some very genuine concerns about the nature and efficacy of his claims. But we're living in a world where this kind of thing is being taken seriously by people who sit on judicial benches, and that is cause for great concern. wonder what the political persuasion of those people is. Then in another email, uh, this comes ultimately has its source from the American Center for Law and Justice, which is uh, the organization. That, I'm trying to find the guy's name now. He's um, Jay Seculo. Jay Seculo. And he says that uh, Christians are under attack in Iran. A couple is tortured for reading the Bible. Two men are tried and convicted for possessing Christian books in Algeria. And more and more there are uh, people who are trying to do the same kind of thing here. He says... Um, goes on to explain some of these different uh, anti-Christian measures that are being enforced in uh, various Islamic countries. And then he states that uh, one of the largest organizations inside the United Nations has made a move. The Organization of the Islamic Conference at the UN is pushing a dangerous resolution making speaking out against Islam, including proclamation of Christianity, an international crime. Won't that be fun? It's, I, I'm convinced I'll be in jail before I'm dead. It's an anti-Christian measure, and it clearly endorses what's taking place in many Muslim co- countries where those who even speak out about Islam are severely punished with imprisonment and even death. 
So just once again, we're living in a world that is becoming more and more hostile to Christianity in general and biblical Christianity uh, specifically. So we need to be in a lot of prayer, especially for the missionaries that are in so many of these uh, in so many of these countries, especially the ones who are outside the Republic of Texas. Come on, y'all can laugh. Okay, we're in Exodus chapter 25, and we're continuing our study of the tabernacle. We have the diagram up on the uh, up on the screen to remind you of the layout of the tabernacle. The outer courtyard is surrounded by uh, a series of curtains that has only one entrance, emphasizing that there's only one way to God. God has the right as God, as the creator of all things in the heavens and the earth and in the seas. He has the right to determine what the circumstances are and how somebody can come into his presence. I mean, every single unbeliever that you know, especially this individual who's got this silly lawsuit, wants to legislate how people treat them. And yet they don't want to allow God to lay down regulations as to how people come into his presence. He has to go along with what everybody else thinks. So God emphasizes again and again this principle of exclusivity that just really irritates and antagonizes unbelievers. Only one way to God. The first thing that happens when a priest would go into the tabernacle, as we saw last time, is he's to go to the labor, laver, bronze laver made out of the mirrors that uh, the uh, ladies had taken out of Egypt and taken from the uh, aristocracy in Egypt. And that was used as a, it looked like a mirror. You would look into it. It would be a reflection upon yourself. The whole picture there is of cleansing, confession of sin, self-examination, terminology that is picked up in the New Testament, emphasizing that every single time a person is going to come into the presence of God, he must be cleansed of sin. And it's not just a, a matter of having been saved, but after salvation, there's ongoing sin in the life that renders us unclean, and there has to be a cleansing. So that comes through the use of 1 John 1, 9 and confession of sin. Once the priest did that, and every time the priest came into the tabernacle, he had to, on penalty of death. God was serious about this. Every And after he washed his hands and his feet, he was only washed, we saw last time, he was washed completely or bathed when he was ordained, we might say, or set apart using the uh, Hebrew word sanctify, consecrated, set apart, picturing that positional uh, sanctification at the beginning of his ministry. But after that, every other time he came into the tabernacle of the temple, he had to wash his hands and his feet, picturing the partial cleansing, the ongoing cleansing. And this is the same imagery that Jesus used when he was talking to uh, Peter and the disciples in the upper room after the Passover dinner as he washed their feet. And Peter said, don't wash my feet. And the Lord said, if you don't let me wash your feet, you will have no part with me. And that Greek word for part isn't the word, doesn't mean quite what we think it means. Most of us hear the word part and we think of something like in a uh, in a play or television show or movie, 
film, there's a, a, someone can have a part or a role to play. But that's not what that word meros means. It is a word that's used in wills and testaments indicating the portion of an inheritance. And so what Jesus is saying is that if, basically to Peter is if you don't confess your sins on a regular basis, so you're in fellowship and walking by the Spirit, then you're not going to produce any divine good, and therefore there won't be any inheritance for you when you get into heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 15 and following talks about the fact that at the judgment seat of Christ, all of our works, everything that we do, are burned, that which has eternal value, divine good, pictured as gold, silver, and precious stones, endures the heat. All that is dross, all that is human good, all that is just a product of our own flesh, is burned up and destroyed. And there are going to be many Christians who never understood the dynamics of the Christian life, never were in fellowship, thought that the Christian life was based on the law, was based on works, was based on man's own personal effort. And so when they come to the judgment seat of Christ... There's not going to be anything there, but they will be saved. Verse 17 says they will be saved yet as through fire. So they enter into heaven, but they don't have anything that is rewardable, and they don't have any capacity, really, for where they are. They're going to be the people who said, you know, I'm just glad I'm there, and it didn't really matter where I was once I got there. A very superficial, shallow mentality. So... The cleansing is very important in our day-to-day walk with the Lord. After the priest came in and washed his hands and his feet, then he would go to the brazen altar, which is a, the picture of the judgment of sin. The main idea for teaching on the brazen altar is the idea of substitution. There were five different sacrifices and offerings there that we have uh, looked at. Not all of them pictured substitution, the uh, fellowship, fellowship or, uh, yeah, the fellowship offering did not picture substitution. The others did because of the nature of the, uh, the person coming in, put his, putting his hand on the lamb or the goat or the pigeon or uh, the bullock and that transfer of sin. So substitution was there. Now we come to the next part of the uh, tabernacle, which is the the inner sanctum called the holy place. It's comprised of two compartments. The outer compartment is usually referred to as just the holy place. The entire structure there is actually the tabernacle itself. This is the place where God dwelt. It's not the outer courtyard. It's the tabernacle itself. And in the Greek, two different words are used to describe the temple as a whole and then the temple in terms of just the the inner sanctum, the dwelling place itself, comprised of the holy place and the holy of holies. The holy place overall is 30 feet long and 15 feet wide, and the holy of holies is within that and is uh, on the back side of that and is 15 feet square, I believe. It is the overall length, is, excuse me, the overall length of the, yeah, the holy place is uh, 20 cubits, which is 30 feet by 15 feet, and the holy place is in the back, which is uh, 15 feet square. So the overall length is going to be 45 feet, and the width is uh, about 15 feet. 
have another picture here. I'm going to be shifting back and forth between some photos and the PowerPoint. So we'll see how that comes across. There's a artist depiction of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And you see the uh, cloud, the white cloud over the tabernacle itself. You see the black smoke ascending from the uh, brazen altar. And this gives us some idea of what it looked like. You see the entryway has, you can see the blue and the gold, excuse me, the blue and the gold and the red cloth here, uh, which is typical. Now we want to talk tonight, we're going to begin to talk about the tabernacle itself, the inner sanctum and its construction. If you look at Exodus chapter 26, Exodus chapter 26, we'll begin to look at the details of its structure. First of all, it begins to, God begins to give instructions as to how the, what the outer covering, what the outer covering would be like. And there were two coverings. The inner covering was made up of curtains of fine linen. And this is the, a very expensive linen that came from Egypt. And it represents the value of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not every detail in the tabernacle pictures something about the Lord Jesus Christ, but most of the major features depict something about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the entirety of the tabernacle is a picture of what and depicts different elements of the Lord's person and his work. So inside there are curtains of fine linen, and they are embroidered with figures of the cherubim. This is mentioned down in verses uh, 31 to 33. So we read at the beginning, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of the woven linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread. This emphasizes, again, the blue represents heaven, the dwelling place of God. The purple represents the royalty. And this is a theocracy. This is where God dwells as the king of the nation. And the scarlet is a depiction of the blood sacrifice necessary, the substitutionary atonement necessary to cover uh, to cover sin. It has artistic designs of cherubim that are woven in them. So when the priest is inside looking up, he sees this linen fabric with it woven with these three different colors of threads, and in them there's woven the images of the cherubim, and the cherubim depict the holiness and righteousness of God. So the entirety of the of the tabernacle and the temple later on will emphasize the holiness, the righteousness, the justice of God. And then there are descriptions given about just how large each curtain will be. Uh, the length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits. A cubit is approximately 18 inches, so you can just factor that out in terms of uh, their general length. So if a, a curtain is uh, 28 cubits, just add 14 to that, and so that's about 42 feet, and the width was about 4 cubits or 6 feet, and every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. 
Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And then they would be laid over the top. And then there's descriptions. You shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain uh, to connect them together. Uh, the description, 50 loops you shall make in one curtain, 50 loops on the edge of the other curtain so that they can all connect together, and then make 50 clasps of gold. So each of these curtains are then connected together. The second layer of curtain is made out of goat hair. The goats, of course, were one of the animals for sacrifice, but it has a practical purpose as well because it would also help waterproof the uh, tabernacle to protect it, to uh, cover it. So the goat hair, and the goat hair is black. The goats in Israel that you see are black, not white. So this is a, a dark covering. And again, there are 11 curtains, each one approximately uh, 45 feet by 6 feet. And there's uh, the 11 curtains, five on each side. And then the six, the extra one, the 11th one actually, five on one side, six on the other. The sixth curtain comes around at the front, so there is an overlap. And then there's over, an overlap in the back mentioned in verse 12. And this allows for complete enclosure of the tabernacle itself. The covering over the top, you have the, the linen and then the goat's hair, and then the next covering are ram skins dyed red, a picture of the uh, blood atonement again, the ram skin being a picture of the sacrifice. Where We talk about a sacrifice of a ram. What should come to mind is the sacrifice of Isaac and God providing a ram as a substitute at the last minute so that Isaac does not have to die. And the lamb is provi- uh, the ram is provided, and this depicts God's uh, grace provision for our salvation. The next layer is porpoise skins or badger skins. There's a lot of debate in the uh, literature on Hebrew literature just what that would be, but again, it provided something of a protection, a waterproofing on the outer level. The inside of the tabernacle, uh, inside the, the, the cloth coverings, there were there was a wood wall made of boards of acacia wood that are overlaid with gold. And every time we have this combination of the acacia wood, which is an extremely dense wood, a hard wood that is not subject to uh, any sort of rot, that's a picture of the uh, impeccability of the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity, that there was no sin there. And then it is covered with gold, which is a picture of his deity. So you have the boards of acacia wood. They are 15 feet high and 28 inches wide. And each one of them has uh, two tenons that fits together into uh, the other. And most people don't know what a tenon is, so i got some diagrams put up here. This is like a, a dovetail when you see, sometimes when you look at a drawer at the back where the sides of the drawer join in a dovetail with the back of the drawer. And this is how you join two pieces of wood together. And the tenon is the piece that sticks out and then is joined into an opening on the, on the inside. So this is described down in uh, verses uh, 16, 17, 18 on the description of the boards. Two tenons shall be in each board for the binding of one to another. Then you shall, this you shall make 
for all the boards of the tabernacle. And you shall make the boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side and 20 on the north side. It goes on to explain all of the details there. All of this shows the concern God has that everything is structured and it's going to hold up and it's going to be uh, well uh, put together, well designed. Each board stands upright and sits in a socket. This was a silver base for each board, and then each board was joined one to another. You had 20 boards on each side and six boards across the back or the rear of the tabernacle. All of the boards are overlaid with gold. And then you have an entry screen that was set on the exterior of the tabernacle itself. Inside there's a veil, and but on the outside there was a screen that was made. Verses 36 and 37 describe this. You shall make a screen for the doorway of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver. You shall make five pillars of acacia for the screen and overlay them with gold, their hooks also being of gold, and you shall cast five sockets or bases of bronze for each of them. So there is this um, a little more solid screen set across the front, and this would allow the priest to move in and out, but no one could see into the tabernacle itself. Now, that's the structure of the holy place as we get into it. The next thing is to go inside and see what is inside. And there are three articles of furniture inside the first room. On, as you entered on the left, which would be the south side, you have the golden uh, lampstand. On the far side, you have opposite the entryway and before you go through the veil into the Holy of Holies, you have the altar of incense. And then on the right side, there's a table of showbread. And each of these depicts something about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The candlestick, the candelabra depicts Christ as the light of the world. The altar of incense pictures prayer and depicts the Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry as our intercessor, always praying for us. And then the table of showbread is designed to depict the fact that Jesus is the bread of life. So every facet here depicts something significant about the uh, ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The description for the lampstand is given in beginning in verse 31 and chapter 25. We'll back up to the previous chapter. 2531. You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of a hammered work. Its shafts, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece. So the, the candelabra weighed uh, one talent of pure gold. Now, one talent of gold is twice as heavy as a talent of silver. So a talent of pure gold at that time weighed approximately 190 pounds avoirdupois. That's 16 ounces to the pound. So that would be about 3,040 ounces, which at the price of $900 an ounce, I didn't check the price of gold today, but it's been hovering just above $900 an ounce. That comes to a little over $2.7 million. And, the, of course, the candles, candelabra they built later in the Solomonic Temple 
and in the uh, Herodian temple was much, much larger than the one that was the original one that was in the tabernacle. And they have completed uh, the all of this furniture at the Temple Institute in Israel where they're redesigning everything for the next temple. So every year everybody gets a kick out of going to the temple store where you can order models. In fact, this year we finally brought back a, a it's like a puzzle where you can put the kids in prep school can put the temple together and, and build it and learn all about it. But they have a sign in the front for the temple store. It's www.templestore.com if you want to go there. But it says, buy your temple now before the, uh, the third temple is built and the prices go up. <laughs> okay, well, as we look at what God uh, teaches about this, let me give you a picture. I have a couple of different pictures here that are... Current. This is a model of the actual candelabra that has been completed for a, a future temple, for the next temple. And this is another artist's depiction of the uh, candelabra itself. So as we read the description, I'm going to leave that up on the, up on the screen so that you can see how uh, the, the Written description matches its depiction. The lampstand is a hammered work. It's one piece. It's gold, once again, depicting the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's of one piece indicating uh, the unity of his person and that God, of course, is one, and indicating a unity, not a singularity. The lampstand is a hammered work. It's shaft, it's branches, it's bowls. It's ornamental knobs. Notice it's not just functional, it is also artistically beautiful. God is the most beautiful, most tremendous artist that's ever been. Look at the world around us. So often we get consumed with things that are functional or pragmatic and forget to make them beautiful as well. And so when we look at the everything that's in the tabernacle, it was not only functional it not only depicted the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ but it was aesthetically beautiful it was gorgeous and so it is designed by men who were given the Holy Spirit uh, Aholiab and Bezalel were given the Holy Spirit to give them skill at making these things so God cares about how well we do things Verse 32 of chapter 25 reads, And six branches shall come out out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side, three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch on each side. And three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. And so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand... On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like, to be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower, and there should be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second, and so on. Now, there's, in the upper area, you would have a bowl where the oil would be, would be poured, and the, only the finest of olive oil could be used. Otherwise, 
you would be putting up a, it would be producing a lot of black smoke and putting a, a carbon deposit on the inside of the uh, the fine linen inside the tabernacle. So this was something that the priests had to take care of. It was a lot of work to be a priest, and they would have to take care of this constantly, uh, trimming it, measuring it, making sure the oil was there because the oil was not ever, I mean, the light was never uh, supposed to go out. And there is some discussion about just how this uh, operated because of a couple of different passages in Scripture. So let me just show you those very briefly. Exodus 30, uh, 27, 20, You shall charge the sons of Israel that they bring you clear oil of beaten olives. It would be uh, extra virgin olive oil. Uh, bring you clear oil of beaten olives for the light to make the lamp burn continually. The light, as we'll see, light represents two things in relationship to God. One is... Uh, has to do with revelation. The other has to do with uh, holiness, with his righteousness. So, And both of those come together because when God reveals himself, what comes with that is a realization of his righteousness and his holiness. So verse 20, you shall, it's to burn continually. Then in Leviticus 24.2, command the sons of Israel that they bring to you clear oil from beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. But then we come to 1 Samuel 3.3, 3, and Samuel is a young boy, and he is in the tabernacle sleeping, and the lamp, uh, and the text says that the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Wait a minute, I thought it was supposed to burn continually. But this says the lamp had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. So he's sleeping in there. And uh, the text says that the, it's early because the lamp hadn't gone out yet. What Remember, this is in the period of the judges when everyone is doing right in their own eyes, and the high priest is Eli, and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are abusing everything, the people and the temple and all of their priestly privileges. So this is shows that things had become so lax that they weren't keeping the... Uh, a lampstand lit inside the temple. And that's how to explain the discrepancy. It should have been lit continuously. Um, as we've read in chapter uh, 25, the lampstand is made of pure gold, and this depicts the Lord Jesus Christ as the light of the world. Now, when we look at Jesus Christ as the light of the world, we're reminded that there is one particular gospel that emphasizes this, emphasizes the whole doctrine of light, and that is the gospel of John. So I want you to turn with me to the first chapter of John. First chapter of John, and we will begin to look at how light is used in the gospel of John. To understand this whole depiction of light in John, and when Jesus says that he is the light of the world, you have to understand the background, the background that we get from the golden lampstand. Now, John 1 1 starts off emphasizing the eternality and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. To get the context, I'm going to start in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, just a couple of notes here for those of you who haven't gone through the Gospel of John study with me. In the beginning should, is translated correctly. It is the Greek phrase in arche, and it is standard procedure in Greek that when you have certain nouns that have something about them that makes the noun inherently definite, that the preposition replaces a definite article. So it is not talking about in a, a beginning, but in the beginning. And every time you have the word RK used in the New Testament with a preposition, there's no article. It always has just the preposition because the concept of beginning is definite. There's only one beginning. It's the first thing. That makes it inherently definite. English, funny, I mean, British English, they have more nouns that are inherently definite than we have in, in American English. You will hear the British talk about going to university, not the university. We put the definite article in there. But they'll just say they're going to university or to hospital because the noun is in and of itself inherently definite. It doesn't need a definite article to make it definite. And so we have the phrase in arche, which is a direct translation of the parallel in the Hebrew that we have in Genesis 1-1, which is bereshit. You have the preposition ba, which means in, and reshith, which means beginning. And there's no article there either. So the idea, though, is it is the beginning. Whenever creation began, we have the, an imperfect tense of the verb, meaning that the word already was, and the imperfect tense emphasizes continual action in past tense. The aorist tense just summarizes it like a, like a picture. The difference between uh, the imperfect tense and the aorist tense, if you want to get it real simple, is the aorist tense is like a snapshot, and the imperfect tense is like a video. It's progressive. And the aorist just summarizes it. It doesn't really tell you anything about the action. It just takes a snapshot of it. So when we have the phrase here, in the beginning was the word, to, to expand the translation, we would say, at the time that everything, that creation began, the word already was continually existing. The emphasis is, therefore, on his eternality. And the word was, again, you have that same verb there in the imperfect tense indicating continual existence in past time and the word was with God and then the last phrase and the word was God now every now and then you'll have somebody knock on your door and they have a new world bible new world translation I wonder how that translates homosexual anyway maybe the Jehovah's Witnesses will get sued too wouldn't that be fun um, you look at, they'll, they'll come up and they'll say, see, we believe Jesus was a God, but he isn't the God. He's not Jehovah. And they go to this verse and they try to show that because theos, the word for God, doesn't have a definite article in the Greek, doesn't, excuse me, I misspoke. Greek doesn't have a definite article, it just has an article because it doesn't have an indefinite article. So you just speak about it having an article. Because it doesn't have an article, they want to translate that 
the same way you would translate an English word that doesn't have an article is if it's indefinite. The word was a God. But in Greek, you have, first of all, certain nouns like God, which are inherently definite. And the second thing you have is that in this kind of a construction, where you have a noun with the, uh, you have two nouns linked with an equative verb, and that's what the to be verb is. When you say the word was God, you can reverse the nouns on each side of the was, and God was the word. The word equals God. God equals the word. It's called an equative verb. Whenever you have an equative verb and you have a predicate uh, adjective on the other side of the verb, you have to decide in, in Greek how are you going to show which is the subject and which is the predicate adjective, a predicate nominative. And the way you do that is with the article. The, one, the noun that has the article is the subject. The other one isn't. So it wouldn't make sense to put an article with God, with theos, because the word has to have the article to indicate that's the subject of the clause. So it only makes sense if you understand Greek, that the word was God, indicating absolute and full deity. So John goes on to say he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And in him, verse 4, in him was life. So in him, and that's the verse that we want to focus on here, in him was life. And again, as we look at this, the word was is an imperfect tense, just as it has been all the way through this section, indicating continual action, that in him there always was life. Life itself is uh, uh, is integral to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who is referred to here by the title of Logos. And it's that life, it is the life of the Lord Jesus Christ that is the light of men. And the use of the word light here emphasizes revelation. It is the primary function of the second person of the Trinity to reveal God to us, and we see that in this very passage. So what we see in verse verse 5 is the light, that is the Logos now is identified as the light, and the light shines continuously in the darkness. So it is the grace of God to continuously reveal himself to us, and that's the primary emphasis of the symbol of light. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness, and that is the result of sin, the darkness did not Comprehended. This is a historical summary by John that he's emphasizing that when the light came to shine in the darkness uh, in Israel, they did not understand who he was. Now, that's not a comprehensive statement. He's not saying nobody understood. He is making a generalized statement that most of the Jews did not understand and comprehend who he was. Uh, verse 6, we read, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and this man, that's verse 7 up on the screen, this man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. And again, we see the emphasis, as we will, all the way through the Gospel of John, that the issue is believing in Christ. There's some 90 times the verb, pistuo, is used in the Gospel of John. And this emphasizes the fact that 
that salvation comes through faith, faith alone, believing who Jesus is and what he did. And so many people want to try to express the gospel as giving your life to Jesus or inviting Jesus into your heart or committing your life to God or all these vague terms that are never found in the scripture. And it's so easy and it's so simple. How does somebody get saved? Believing in Jesus. It's, it's just so, such a simple phrase, and yet so many people have, have difficulty and trouble with it. Well, John, John the Baptist is the witness to the light. Verse 8 says, He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Or there, as a New, King, uh, a New American Standard translates it, there was a tr- this was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. This is common grace, that God is making himself known to everyone, and it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now skip down a few verses, and we come to one of the primary verses dealing with the incarnation in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the process of the incarnation, the virgin conception, virgin birth, and uh, the Lord Jesus Christ growing up, living among men as a full human being. And we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him. See how this section expands on the things that are said in the prologue in the first 13 verses. John bore witness of him. He is the witness of the light. And he cried out, this, is, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we've all received, and grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him, New King James translates it. You know what that word is for, for declare in the Greek? You hear this word, at least the English form of it, all the time. It's exegeo, where we get our word exegesis. It is to explain something. It is to uh, reveal the meaning of something. So exegesis has to do with uh, unpacking the meaning of Scripture and explaining it. So Jesus Christ is the exegesis of the Father. And that's how we know the Father is because we see the Son. And this is something Jesus emphasizes again and again in his ministry. So as the light, he is the one who reveals the Father. But what happens when the Father's revealed? Well, he's revealed in creation. And Paul says in Romans 1 that what happens is that as men know him, because his invisible attributes are evident externally to us and knowledge of him are within us, Paul says their response is that they suppress the knowledge of God in unrighteousness. Well, this is exactly what John says in John 3, verses 19 and 20. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. This is the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. So they hate the light. They want to turn the light off. They want to shut it down. They would rather stay in 
They would rather stay in darkness. The best illustration of this is walking into a deserted house in Texas. Nobody's lived there for a while, and it's in the middle of the night, and it's pitch black, and you flip the lights on, and all the roaches scurry for cover. That communicated. Guess who the roaches are? When the light comes on, people hate it. They want to turn the light off and force it. They, they, they're convinced they're living, they're living in a diagonal world and it's a parallel world. And so they're living in a fantasy and they want to force everybody else to hold to that fantasy. Verse 20 says, for everyone who does evil hates the light. General principle, those who are unbelievers who practice evil. What is it? What does the Bible mean when it says to practice evil, to do evil? How do we define evil? We didn't get there Tuesday night in our study with Solomon in First Kings, First Kings eleven, when Solomon introduces idolatry into Egypt, and the text says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Again and again and again, as we go through First Kings, we will see that Jeroboam. Who, sets, who becomes king in the north and introduces uh, idolatry in the north, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord and made them bow down to idols. That's how evil is defined in Scripture. Evil isn't defined in Scripture in terms of a mass murderer or somebody who uh, commits a genocide or any other of the horrible crimes that we think of in, in uh, our society or our culture. Evil is defined foremost as worshiping some God, something as God in the place of God. That is its foundation. And so when John says everyone who does evil, he's talking about people who have substituted the worship of something in the creation for the worship of the creator. For everyone who does evil hates the light. It's the same thing that Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1, that man worship, worships the creature rather than the creator, and he is suppressing truth and unrighteousness. For everyone who does evil is parallel to the truth suppressor in Romans 1. Hating the light is the action of suppressing the truth, and they do not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. We often ask the question, what in the world can be motivating these people that we see coming up in our culture like this man that I mentioned earlier who's suing Zondervan and Thomas Nelson because they use the word homosexual when they translate the Bible, and that just, that, that, oh, that's just given him all sorts of trouble through his life. Well, that's because he doesn't want his evil deeds, his sinful deeds rather, to be exposed. He wants to live as if what he's doing isn't wrong, and he doesn't want anybody telling him he's wrong. And so the those who have replaced God with the worship of, of anything in the creation hate the light, and they don't want to be exposed. So revelation exposes the truth. It exposes us for who we are as sinners and that we have a need for salvation, and that need has been supplied by the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. Now, John 3.21 gives us the contrast that he who practices the truth, this is 
not the truth suppressor, but the one who practices the truth, the one who has positive volition and God consciousness, the one who wants to know about God, comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So there is this, this sets up the battle between the truth suppressor and the true truth seeker, not the uh, seeker that you have in church growth churches who really is seeking his own uh, self-idolatry. Okay, let's skip ahead to John 8, the next major section that deals with the concept of the light and John. This is where Jesus is again speaking to the Pharisees, and he then he says, emphasizes who he is, and he spoke, speaks again to them, verse 12, outside the temple. He is uh, just outside the steps of the temple, and I have a couple of pictures for you to give you an idea of where we're talking about. Uh, let's see. Go ahead. Now, I'm going to take you through a process of pictures to try to help you see what you see today. This is a model that is built. The terrain is laid out like the terrain was in the first century. This is at the Jewish Museum in the Jerusalem Museum in Jerusalem. And this is a scale model of Jerusalem at uh, uh, about 50 A.D., about 20 years or so after the crucifixion of Christ. You know that because of the third wall that's uh, displayed there. And this is the uh, Herodian Temple. We would be looking at it from the vantage point of this picture is looking at the temple itself from the Mount of Olives from the east. And so this is the east gate. Acts refers to this gate here as the gate beautiful. This is the outer courtyard, the courtyard uh, of the women. And then you would go in through this gate. And the priest would go in. And then inside the courtyard here is where you have the uh, brazen altar and the uh, laver. And then the door enters into the holy place and the holy of holies. Over here... You had various uh, things set up where they would sell uh, animals for the sacrifices. And then just off the screen here to the left, we'll go to a picture of that in a minute, is where you have your entry on the south wall into the temple uh, precinct itself. That's where this scene in John 8 is taking place, just off the steps of the south wall. I'm going to shift perspective here in the next picture. Now we're looking from the south. Before we were looking from the right-hand side directly into the uh, east gate, and now we're looking at the south wall of the of the temple complex itself. We see the Hulda, uh gates here and the steps of the temple, and it's down in, in this area right here where the scene is taking place where Jesus says that he is the light of the world. So in the presence of the tabernacle, the concept of light is going to reverberate with the uh, tabernacle and temple imagery of the golden, excuse me, the golden candlestick. Here is another view 
Now I've moved around to the uh, south uh, west corner. You see the hold the gates over here. This is the south wall, and then this is the back side of the temple. Now this is another model. This is a model down underneath in the uh, Wailing Wall temple. I mean the Wailing Wall uh, tunnels. And here you see the same thing. Here's the uh, south wall here. You would come up through various, uh, through some steps coming out here and here, those white squares. And then you would enter into the uh, temple precinct from the south. And then here's a depiction of the temple. You can see how large it was. If you see pictures of the Temple Mount now with the dome of the rock there, the temple was three or four times larger than the dome of the rock. It dominated the landscape. Here is another, uh, this is just the temple itself, another depiction of the temple, artist model conception. And then here is a, they have these, uh, I guess they're bronze models of all kinds of, all these different sites in Israel. This is how it looks today. This is looking from the east here. This is where the original east gate was. This is the present east gate built in the walls that were built by uh, Suleiman the Magnificent back in the uh, early 1500s. This is the Dome of the Rock. The rock that is there are otherwise known as the uh, Mosque of Omar, built in the late 600s, and it sits over a rock that is uh, thought to be where the Holy of Holies was. It's the rock where on the, this whole ridge here is Mount Moriah. And this is where Abraham was to sacrifice Isaac. It is the site of the, uh, of the Holy of Holies. And now it is, of course, and if you go in there, you can see the rock, but no one has been allowed to go in there. No non-Muslims have been allowed to go in there since the uh, Intifada of 2000. Over here on the left, you have the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And then it's this area here. The walls are pretty much where they were, fairly close to where they were at the time of of Jesus, and it is this area here where you have the uh, outer steps, the outer courtyard, and then this area down here is the, here is the area of the old city of David. Now that I've set you up, now you can see what it looks like today. This is looking at the southeastern corner of the temple, what would have been the temple precinct. This is the pinnacle of the temple when Jesus is being uh, tempted by Satan, taken to the top of the uh, pinnacle of the temple, except in those days they didn't have all this landfill in here, and so it dropped on down this uh, precipice all the way down to the bottom of the valley here. So that was uh, quite a distance. This is the Al-Aqsa Mosque here, and then the area outside the temple walls, the southern steps are in this area right here where the arrow is. And this is that uh, particular area. You can see where they walled up the original entryway, the Hulda gates that went on to the uh, temple precinct. Okay. Now we'll go back to John. Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
So it connects again the concept of life and light. Truth is life. Light reveals the truth. When he says this, he's actually making a messianic claim. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, the rabbis, would understand this. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 said that there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times he treated, that as God treated the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The area of Zebulun and Naphtali is in the north. In Galilee, that's where Nazareth was located, where Jesus grew up and the area where he had his ministry uh, from Capernaum. The people who walk in darkness, the prophecy says in verse 2, will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And yet, as John says, they will reject it. Isaiah 49, 6, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up. This is God the Father talking to his servant, who is God the Son. You have plural deity in Isaiah. Don't let anybody tell you you don't find the Trinity in the Old Testament. He says, it is too small a thing that you, addressing the second person of the Trinity, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. You don't say God didn't have a missionary plan in the Old Testament. It's very clear that he did. And you see this come together in terms of the Christian life in passages like Ephesians 5, 8, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Positionally, walk as children of light. So the picture of the golden candlestick is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who reveals the Father, as the one who is the light of life, and the one who is the light of the world bringing the truth and the gospel into the world so that the unsaved can be saved, so that man can have hope and meaning and a future destiny with God. So the light of the candelabra is a picture of God's grace and God's initiative in providing salvation and a Savior. So we've looked at the first element in the uh, outer a compartment of the holy of the holy place, and next time we'll come back and look at how the uh, altar of incense depicts the intercessory ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is significant for uh, for our study in Hebrews. All of this is good background to understand Hebrews chapter uh, eight and, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter nine and chapter ten. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to go through these things and to be reminded of how the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament and how the New Testament shows, helps us to understand what is being depicted in the Old Testament. And in this, we see the unity of your word and the unity of the authorship. Even though there were over 40 different human authors, we have one single divine author who gives unity to all of Scripture. Father, we are thankful that you have revealed yourself to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have the light of life because of faith alone in Christ alone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.